I'm your host, Lydia Kalitri, and welcome back to The Youth Vote, a podcast about young people and the issues they care about during the 2020 election. It's back to school season, and colleges across the country are still figuring out how to hold classes during a pandemic, whether they be in person, online, or a combination of the two. But what's it actually like for students that have returned to campus? And as the election approaches, what's being done to make sure they're casting their ballots in November? For this episode, I talked to student reporters from Boston University, Middlebury College, and the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill about how they've been covering their school's reopenings. After all, who knows their schools better than the students that cover them? I also spoke to a state director from the Campus Election Engagement Project about how they've been working to bring voting resources to students, whether they're on campus or online. On August 14th, just four days after classes started at UNC Chapel Hill, the university announced the first clusters of coronavirus cases on campus. The announcement, along with viral videos of students partying in large numbers, kicked off a whirlwind of breaking news for UNC's student paper, The Daily Tar Heel. Three days later, the university announced it was moving completely online. Recounting that day, Maddie Ellis, The Daily Tar Heel's university desk editor, said that reporters were getting the news just as students and national media outlets were. There were rumors throughout that day that something was coming, something big was coming, and we called everyone we could and tried to get as much information as possible. But at the end of the day, it was released. Um, Big campus notifications are sent in mass emails to the whole campus community. So we got that email and then it's hit the computer, hit the breaking news. So that was what that day was like. Looking back, it's... (laughs) It's very shocking, but I think the biggest thing was I didn't even realize how rapidly everything was changing until I can step back now and look back. But yes, it was a whirlwind. It was stressful, difficult to keep up with, but I'm proud of the work that we were able to do and the news we were able to cover. Ellis said that students were confused and angered by the sudden change of plans. But the strongest reactions came from student leaders who have been pointing out problems with the university's social distancing guidelines since they were released in July. They had been advocating, issuing formal recommendations to the university, trying to work with the university to implement these policies to avoid what ended up happening from happening. And we did a story talking with some of those leaders and activists about how they were feeling now. And one of them said they can't even feel vindicated because... Now there's a whole host of new problems about how to keep on-campus housing equitable, but also they were right. They knew they predicted that this would happen and tried to prevent it, but they don't feel vindicated because there's still widespread COVID. One of the biggest things that we've seen was there was a great sense of stress because students were told to move off campus the day after classes went remote. So basically the university said, to continue our efforts to de-densify housing. That's the term they use. They asked that students cancel their housing contracts. And unless you had an express need, and they basically said there would be a hardship application and you'd have to, the university would review whether or not you were eligible to stay on campus. So students were having to move off campus very suddenly, but classes went on. There was later a pause in classes the following week on August 24th and 25th. But by then, at least 20% or more of students had already moved off campus by then. So classes are going on, but you're having to move. It was just 
a lot of stress and a lot of confusion, I would imagine. Despite classes moving remotely, the Daily Tar Heel is still printing three times a week, publishing online daily, and editors are social distancing in the office on campus. Although the university desk can't cover student life like it normally would, Ellis is still sending reporters to cover remote events. Now what we're seeing is students are still participating in classes, but they're having to adjust to a social life, a campus community that's basically all online. So we're going to stay present at student organization meetings, see what events they have going on, and just try and make sure that we're still listening and reaching out to students. I always want to seem accessible, and I think all the reporters and all of our editors want people to know that we are still students. So we're taking classes, we're trying our best to doing our reading, sometimes shirking them a little bit, but we are still students and we are still stakeholders in the things that we're covering. So of course we uphold values of objectivity and due diligence and thorough reporting. But at the end of the day, we are also affected by the decisions of this university. So what's happening at schools where students are back on campus for the semester? Boston University is conducting hybrid classes, but according to Angela Gang, the editor-in-chief of BU's Daily Free Press, being on campus feels different with social distancing measures in place. It's quite a weird feeling. Like, I had to walk through campus to get to work every day during the summer, and it was all empty except for maybe like a few joggers in the morning, but then you slowly start to see all these students trickle back in, and it just feels really weird. It's like, wow, everyone's fully coming back, but it's still a very different feeling because it's not quite as lively. Like people are sitting outdoors in their own little spaces, in their own little bubbles. You really don't see people that much anymore. Everyone seems to be in their dorms. There's barely anyone in the elevator, which last year that would be a miracle, you know? So it's really weird. It seems like people are everywhere, but at the same time, they're all cooped up, you know? So what are some of the rules that BU has put in place to kind of enforce social distancing? I know that a friend of mine, she said that there's this rule that if people are hosting gatherings of more than 25 people, it's an automatic suspension. So originally BU was kind of getting a lot of flack for not really defining consequences for people who don't follow the rules. They didn't really like define any sort of enforcement procedures but they did roll out with that and I feel like that's definitely something that's necessary because at least for undergraduates all the people who return chose to return and so of course it makes sense that they have to follow these rules no matter how strict they are and regarding mandatory daily screening of your symptoms and scheduling your COVID tests on time all of that is enforced through a strike-based policy So, for example, if you miss scheduling your test the first time, then you get your Wi-Fi turned off as part of your your first strike punishment. So, yeah, if you miss too many strikes, then you eventually get kicked out of housing. And then, of course, if you are selfish enough to go out and gather in a group where you know that it's not safe to gather, then you get a suspension. I personally feel very safe on campus because I feel like you know, getting tested every three days, that's kind of a luxury that other schools don't necessarily have the resources to provide. So I feel like we're really lucky to be getting that. 
The Daily Free Press won't be returning to the newsroom this semester, and for social distancing reasons, they decided to halt print editions and man-on-the-street interviews for their city section. Despite these changes, Yang said she's seen an increase in the papers following online. People are turning more to us for information, especially on Twitter and via Instagram. Our coverage has really gained us a following from PhD students and professors because BU has been focusing a lot on the undergraduate population, but there are a lot of things that grad students and faculty are upset about because BU hasn't really been taking their input or taking their concerns into as much consideration. At one point during the summer, we wrote a story on how if grad students who have, you know, a teaching position, like a teaching fellow, if they can't return to campus, then they will lose their stipend, which effectively means that they can't continue grad school because they're not really allowed to work. So that obviously forces them into a position where they either have to come back and risk their safety, or they just have to lose their stipend and basically not be able to live in Boston. Just things like that, it affects those populations a lot more. And because we're covering it, they've been really kind of tuned in to what kind of information we're releasing. The Daily Free Press has been keeping track of the number of COVID cases on campus and statewide right on their website. We were doing daily data updates regarding like number of cases for Massachusetts in general. And that didn't get nearly as much attention as our data charts for the number of cases at BU. Some people have reached out to us saying that our charts are a lot clearer than the ones that BU have on their website. So I think in general, the BU community, that's one of the things that they appreciate us doing. Speaking of COVID tracking charts, Benji Renton, the digital director of the Middlebury campus, is kind of obsessed with them, and he has been since his study abroad trip was cut short last semester. I think I'm a very visual person, so I really like to use that to help explain and supplement the reporting that myself or or the others do. And so I've kind of seen my role as someone who tries to get the best data from the best sources that we can get and publish it in a clear way that people can understand. I got involved, I think my relationship with this pandemic started a lot earlier than most people in the U.S. I was actually in China in January um, studying abroad when the pandemic first hit over there. And so I think the tie that I had with it was personal because this was an an experience that I had seen uh, myself and I wanted to really continue that. And the next kind of big project that I had done was way back in March when schools were transitioning to online and I was trying to keep as best I can a running tally and a running database of that happening. Brenton isn't just keeping track of cases at Middlebury College. He's monitoring them on campuses nationwide and keeping track of how many schools are staying open or going virtually this fall with a project for Inside Higher Ed. I had started it in, I think, as an individual thing uh, early in July. I think USC in California was really the first school to move online. And I had kept track of it. I've been following a lot of work of people like Robert Kelchin, who's a higher ed professor at Seton Hall, Chris Marsicano, who's been a great help at at Davidson College. And through them, I was kind of connected with a couple of the editors at Inside Higher Ed, and we were able to work something out that we could both really contribute to just because I can't get all of them at once. And I think 
people who report on higher ed keep very close tabs on all the schools. And I, I thought that that would be best to create a more comprehensive picture. I think some of the, the trends that we've been seeing, um, schools always like to follow their peers. And, and that was that was apparent in the spring and is definitely apparent now in the fall. I think it was George Washington who announced a flip to online at first. And then Howard, American, and Georgetown, all peer schools in the D.C. area, within the th- a three-day period, really just all went online. And so that was pretty common. And I've been keeping track of some of the reasons why schools have made that change. Another big reason is due to state regulations. California, you know, at one point, their higher ed reopening plan did not allow for in-person classes. And so that led a lot of especially the Claremont colleges, a lot of schools to not reopen in the traditional way. And then most recently, I think one of the trends that we've been seeing is schools have been looking to other schools that have experienced outbreaks within their first couple weeks of reopening. And they've realized this is a big challenge. Transmission on a college campus is incredibly challenging and incredibly hard to control And so as a result, looking at our peer schools, we've decided to remain online for the fall. What I like about the Inside Higher Ed map now, which I hadn't done in the past, is there's a time aspect to it. So you can kind of drag the slider and see the order in which schools have made their decisions, which I think is is really, really cool. So, I mean, kind of based on the numbers and things that you're seeing right now, where do you think this will go? Do you think that more schools will transition to online? Do you think that they'll remain open? What are your thoughts? I think there's a number of things that are at play here. I think there are a handful of schools that still haven't made fall decisions, which I find quite odd. But for the most part, schools are going with the plans that they currently have. I think every Every day and every week, I always think, oh, this is going to be the last preemptive shift to online. And I think we're getting really past that point where universities are changing their plans before students come just because students are moving in. And and I think schools are going to have to roll with it. And I think now is a question of, well, we're way past the part of trying to avoid getting the virus on campus. How can we best control it? while we're on campus. And I think some schools, based on their testing plans, based on the the precautions that they've put in place, I think some schools will definitely fail at doing so. And I think there is a chance that some schools will succeed. And I think there's a chance that schools with adequate testing plans with low case numbers will be able to get to Thanksgiving and come out of this in in a pretty good shape. episode of the youth vote if we didn't talk about voting. So how can college students, as dispersed as they are right now, find the resources they need to cast their ballots in November? To find out, I spoke with Luke Verdisha, who's been involved with the Campus Election Engagement Project, or SEEP, since he was a freshman at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It was kind of neat to, you know, be having these conversations with campus administrators, staff members, faculty members, And as we're having these conversations with folks talking about how best can we engage students, I kind of have a a good sense in my mind of like what works, what might not work as well. So I always thought it was such a huge asset to kind of be so close to the college experience, being that I was a student at the time. I just graduated this past May, so still very uh, not far removed yet. But yeah, I always saw it as such a strength and uh, you know, very interesting to kind of be able to come at it from that perspective. Verdisha works with about 30 institutions of higher education in Wisconsin to create resources and develop strategies for student engagement. 
These institutions include public and private universities, community colleges, and trade schools of all sizes. But just like the schools they interact with, SEEP has also had to adjust their operations for the new semester. One thing that um, you know, we've all been doing is just kind of thinking a little bit differently about the ways in which we are sharing these resources with schools. So for instance, let's take a resource like a student voting guide that kind of breaks down the step-by-step process of like how to register to vote or how to request a ballot. In the past, we would have certainly just created it kind of in like a standard, right, eight and a half by 11 format, because we would have assumed that, you know, we'd share it with our contacts and they'd print off a lot of copies, put them on tables, and students would pick up those papers and, you know, read through them and, and act upon them. But now we were kind of thinking a little bit differently creatively about that, thinking of like, okay, what formats could we create these sorts of resources in? And so one thing that I'm doing, for instance, is creating, kind of adapting this student voting guide into a collection of social media posts that a school could use. Say it's like four or five different posts on Instagram that you put in a little collection. A student could just swipe through to see a step-by-step of how to register to vote. And then we're able to kind of customize them if the school wants to put like their brand colors or attach their logo to those posts to kind of create that consistent branding, we can do that too. Social media has been a huge tool for SEEP to reach out to students during the pandemic, so much so that they even have a social media toolkit on their website. One thing we're really excited about throughout the fall semester is with our fellows, actually, we saw on a lot of the fellows' applications a specific mention of social media and digital engagement and them kind of wanting to tap into that as a way to reach students particularly fellows who, um, whose campuses will be mostly online this fall. And so we're really excited to offer a handful of our fellows this semester the opportunity to do like an Instagram or a Twitter takeover and kind of just like be posting fun things about voting, elections, um, kind of show off the work that they're doing as a fellow on their campus, but more generally just kind of starting conversations about the importance of voting We also have created a series of animated videos, actually, that kind of break down the process of how to vote absentee. We're working on another video right now, actually, about how to utilize in-person voting options this fall, whether it's in-person absentee voting or, of course, voting on Election Day at one's polling place. And so we're hoping that can kind of be another strong supplement with our social media stuff of these kinds of fun to watch animated videos that really break down the process in a very condensed, easy to understand way. So if you're a college student that wants to vote, but has absolutely no idea what to do or how to get more involved, here are Verdicious tips. First, I would encourage students like to do all of this stuff sooner rather than later, right? If you're not already registered um, to do so sooner rather than later, if you need to update your registration, if you just moved recently, I know a lot of students are moving this time of year. But I think another really important thing that I would encourage students to think about is just kind of like having these conversations with friends, classmates, other peers, family members even, you know, and just talking about this, right? So like asking a friend like, hey, like, have you registered to vote yet? I I, I haven't yet. And I was wondering how to do that, right? And maybe that friend is like, oh yeah, I just did that a couple days ago. It was really easy. Let me tell you how to do that. So I think really, I think the power of those kinds of like personal networks that we all have can't be overstated. Another opportunity to students um, is serving as poll workers at polling places on election day, as well as at early voting sites ahead of election day, recognizing that there will likely be a shortage of poll workers and that, you know, representing one really great way for students to get involved and to kind of have that really, you know, close look at the voting process at play, actually. 
read recent coverage from BU's Daily Free Press, UNC's Daily Tar Heel, and the Middlebury Campus, or to check out voting resources and videos from the Campus Election Engagement Project, the links have been included in the description. My name is Lydia Kalitri. Thanks for listening to The Youth Vote, and stay tuned for more episodes. Thank you.